This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it is a solo episode. No Mark Schindler. He will be here tomorrow to break down the four games that occur on, what is that? I guess that's Wednesday night in the United States, Thursday night here in Australia. But today we got these incredible games. We got Trey Young forcing a game six against Boston on the road with 38 points, 13 assists incredible performance that was somewhat helped by Boston's absolutely terrible dog shit late game offense. Then we're going to dive into Jimmy Butler's masterclass yesterday. So for people who aren't Australian, uh, yesterday was a public holiday here in Australia, Anzac Day, and Essendon Football Club, the Australian football team that I root for along with my wife, plays on that day every year. It's a very big event. So I did not really do a full deep dive. I didn't think I wanted to do a podcast following that or before that, just because uh, my mind was like half diverted elsewhere. So we're going to dive deep into Jimmy Butler's absolute masterclass, 56 points to put the Milwaukee Bucks on the brink of elimination in this playoffs. Then we're going to dive into the two late games tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about the Nuggets Wolves. I'm going to be completely upfront and transparent with you guys. I only watched the fourth quarter of Nuggets Wolves. It was tied going in to that quarter. It was, I thought, a really interesting representative quarter of many of the things we have seen from those two teams. Uh, and in some ways, some interesting things from Minnesota that could be uh, potential to build upon next season, or they could look to move in a totally different direction. Tim Connolly's name obviously being bandied about with the Washington Wizards as a potential option to succeed. Tommy Shepard is their general manager. Who knows what will happen there, but a really interesting fourth quarter and something with Nikola Jokic that's driving me crazy that I want to talk about and dive into uh, on the defensive end. Then we're going to dive deep into the Phoenix Suns and the operational Death Star that we finally saw in the third quarter. They dropped 50 points in the third quarter after the Clippers really put it on them offensively in the first half. I think the Clippers had 71 points in the first half. was wildly impressive. And then the Suns just decided to shut that shit down and completely finish this game. So let's dive in. Let's start with Trey Young and the Boston Celtics. So a really interesting game here. It felt like to me, to be completely honest, I thought Atlanta played better, at least Trey Young played better in the first quarter than any other part of this game. And I think that that is almost crazy to think about. Just the way that he dominated ball screens, I thought in that first quarter, was absolutely incredible and so indicative of his ability that we're going to talk about here momentarily in ball screens to particularly manipulate bigs and manipulate 
his own defender by getting them on his hip, being able to get to that floater, being able to distribute. Uh, we saw a lot of Trey's best traits on display, I thought, in that first quarter where the mix between his own shot and getting shots for his teammates, I thought was really on point. Uh, we saw an Onyeka Okongwu three-pointer in that first quarter, which was pretty wild, a pick-and-pop three from Onyeka. If he can do that, he is someone that will stick in the NBA for many, many years, uh, in my opinion, and be a real starting center, uh, unlike we have seen from him at this point, despite being the sixth overall pick. Uh, just was absolutely an incredible performance in the first six minutes from Trey, and then in the second quarter, Atlanta's defense just completely fell apart. It was 39 to 34 after a pair of Sadiq Bay and Bogdan Bogdanovich three and fouled on a three pointer to make three free throws. Uh, Boston had scored on the possession in the middle of that, I believe, with a Marcus Smart drive and finish, but they scored on four straight possessions there. Then they didn't score on three possessions. And then after that, they went on a run of nine out of 10 possessions. They got two or three points on. It was, I believe, a three, another three or two straight threes, then a Malcolm Brogdon layup, then a Brogdon mid-range shot. Then Derek White hit a corner three. And then Brogdon got to the bucket for an and one for the sixth in a row. And then Jalen, I think, got a run out for the seventh in a row. Brogdon missed a wide open three on the potential eighth in a row. But then another Jalen Brown fast break. And then a three-on-one layup for Jalen Brown got them to nine out of ten possessions where they scored a bucket. And that was exactly what hindered Atlanta throughout the course of this game and what has hindered them throughout the course of this series. Now, let's go forward to the fourth quarter here because I think that that is where things get really interesting. Boston goes up 102.89 with nine minutes, 30 seconds left. And right as that's happening on the telecast with TNT, you get Boston coach Joe Missoula saying that they need to play the most disciplined together basketball that they have played thus far. Let's say that means in this game, let's say that means all season. Who knows? They're trying to close out a playoff series. I think it's reasonable for him to say that they needed to play their most locked-in game of the season uh, in that fourth quarter. And they did literally anything but. It was one of the worst offensive performances I have seen uh, from a really good offensive team in the fourth quarter of a game. It was 109 to 96 with six minutes left after a Jalen Brown three. Boston scores, I believe, 117 points in this game. So in that last six minutes, they score eight points. And by the way, I believe that four of those points occurred in the last 30 seconds. So basically for five minutes and 30 seconds, Boston scores four points. How did that happen? So at four minutes and 40 seconds, Jalen or uh, Jason Tatum settles for a three-pointer, didn't really have to do it. The next possession down, Jalen Brown, multiple pivots, uh, one of those classic Jalen Brown contested mid-range shots, doesn't go. Next possession, the Hawks put two on the ball around Jason Tatum. 
he throws a pretty lazy pass trying to get it cross court uh, over from the right side of the court to the left side of the court turnover that leads to a pretty sick sidestep Trey Young three that we'll get to momentarily. Uh, and then the next possession is an incredi- incredibly lazy Marcus Smart pass that gets deflected by Trey Young. That's a steal. And then the next possession is Rob Williams coming through, big offensive rebound, misses a free throw on an and one. Then the next possession down, a bad offensive foul on Marcus Smart with a really obvious moving screen. Then I believe two possessions later, a really terrible Jalen Brown turnover where he leaves his feet without a plan and throws the ball and it just gets grabbed and stolen. Essentially there was, I believe only two possessions that I felt like were in any way positive over the course of this run for Boston. It was the next two Uh, Jalen Brown goes up. He gets a pretty easy layup that he kind of smokes. Rob Williams gets the tip in. Or no, he misses the tip in. It was a really good offensive possession, though. Then the next one is the crazy jump ball uh, that leads to the Jason Tatum recovery. And Robert Williams just kind of leaks out behind Atlanta's defense in a total fucking breakdown from Atlanta. But that's basically two possessions in God knows how many minutes of good offense for Boston. I believe it was for five and a half minutes. Two possessions of good offense for Boston. And simultaneously, we're just getting a Trey Young masterclass on the other side of the court. And this is where I want to dive into some tape here because I thought what Trey Young did in this late third quarter, early fourth quarter run was really, really impressive and really kind of carried the way for Boston. What I want you guys to pay attention to here as I'm diving into this, Trey Young, for my money, is maybe the best guard in the NBA at engaging the big man that is either coming toward him, that is doubling him if teams put two on the ball, or that is playing in drop. He is constantly probing, and it's because of that three-level scoring ability and passing ability that Trey Young has. He completely keeps these big defenders on their toes. There's not a single thing that they can do to stop him. Like with Anthony Edwards, you might be a little bit more comfortable taking – you know, not worrying about taking away the pass because Anthony Edwards is not a great passer of the ball yet. Well, if you put two on the ball and you try and double team Trey at any point in a pick and roll action, he's going to find the open man. And I thought that Trey Young obviously did an incredible job tonight finding the open man, but let's kind of dive deep into this. So here, here is Trey Young. He's on Sam Hauser. The thing that Atlanta did really, really well throughout this late third, early fourth quarter run was make Trey Young find that mismatch big. That was his goal the entire third and fourth quarter. I am trying to find the best mismatch on the court for me to take advantage of who is in front of me. So here it's Sam Hauser. Sam Hauser just has no chance on this play. That is a mismatch. Trey Young, step back, easy. So here Trey Young is going to take a screen from Sadiq Bay. Again, Sam Hauser is the man guarding Sadiq Bay. They decide to switch the action here and then. You're going to see Onyeka Okongwu come up, set this second little step-up screen, and then here comes Trey. It's really hard for Hauser to get through that screen. He engages Robert Williams as the big man, engages. Hauser gets back, but he's not really quick enough to be able to light enough on his feet is maybe a better word, to stay in front of Trey. Trey just steps under, finds the open man at the basket, after engaging Robert Williams, who has to step up to try and block the floater after Hauser over pursues a little bit. 
Here we go again. Trey Young coming up. He's going to take this little screen here. He's going to engage Robert Williams again. Engaging Robert Williams. Engaging Robert Williams. Just that extra second longer than he needs to. Rob Williams eventually has to recover back onto Anyeka, and it creates that little secondary hesitation in Derek White here as the on-ball defender. Look, because Rob Williams is so extended at that ball, Derek White can't really extend himself into that play. So you see Derek White kind of drop his shoulders back just a little bit. That gives Trey Young all the room he's going to need to get up for that little floater, right? So this is just going to be a little slip screen here from Onyeka Kongwu. Trey's going to come back. He's going to get the dribble handoff. And what this set does here that is really interesting is you see Bogdan Bogdanovich come up. He sets this initial screen for Trey Young. That's going to get the first switch. And then now they're in a drop scenario with Blake Griffin having to guard in a drop. That is not a good scenario for Boston. I was very surprised to see Blake Griffin in this game at all. I know that it feels like the Celtics want to try and get him back just in case they need him for later series. But this was just not not the series for Blake Griffin because you can't really do anything with him defensively against Trey. So here, I mean, Blake just has no real chance to guard. He's not long enough to be able to affect the Trey Young floater. He's not long enough to play in the gap, really, uh, in situations like this. So here you get Trey just getting to the bucket easily. I believe this is the one where he has the little shake. This is a scissor action at the top of the key. That's what the Bogdan screen is. That's what the dribble handoff is. He gets the little behind-the-back fake, and that's going to create just that little bit of separation from Jalen Brown to score. Okay, here we go again. This is a uh, just a rejected screen here, if I remember correctly. And again, uh, Blake Griffin not quite athletic enough just to stay in front and stop Trey from turning this corner here. Uh, Derek White kind of stumbles. But even just that little area for Trey Young, even just that small amount of space – that is how little space he needs to turn the corner. That's how good of a passer he is. If he is able to engage that big, he's always going to find that guy. This is Onyeka Okongwu again. Onyeka Okongwu closed this game for Atlanta. I thought he was absolutely terrific here. So here we go again. Dribble handoff. Trey Young, the key here before any of this happens is we're going to rewind just a touch more. Trey uh, inbounds this ball to Bogdan Bogdanovich. And prior to the inbound, they have gotten the switch between Bogdan and Onyeka to where Al Horford is coming up. And he is going to be the guy that's going to be forced into Trey Young once Bogdan switches or slips that action to the corner. So here, what Trey Young was trying to do again was trying to get the big man on him every single time late in this game. I mentioned that big three-point shot earlier that he hit that six sidestep against Al Horford. He says to Bogdan, I want you to stay down there, stay down. I want to ISO Al Horford here. Just a quick inside-out dribble, gets that nasty step back. Al Horford is a phenomenal defender despite his age at this point. Just that little bit of space is going to kill you every time against Trey Young. He can knock that shot down. Again, here you go. You get the switch, getting Marcus Smart off of Trey Young here. This time you're not going to get a switch, but because 
it's Jalen Brown instead of Marcus Smart on Trey Young here. Jalen Brown is just a little bit bigger. Is just that much worse at getting through screens. So by getting that initial switch on the first screen, you're going to see that Trey Young is going to take this Onyeka Okongwu screen, a terrific screen by a terrific screener in Onyeka Okongwu. And at this point, he's just simply engaging the big. If Rob Williams drops too far, which is what he does here, it's just an easy pull-up. If Rob Williams is out and trying to like trap him in the corner, it's just an easy pocket pass here for Onyeka Okongwu. You get the ball into rotation. Things work well that way. This is a three. This ties the game at 111, right? Okay, and then finally here, what you're going to see, again, really good screen. This results in a switch, but what you're going to see here coming up is something that Boston did throughout this game generally. Whenever there was a big typically lined up on Trey, when it was to one side of the court for the most part, right around the three-point liner inside. So Marcus Smart is going to actually come and double the ball here, believing that he is going to be able to try and make an impact in this play. The thing is that Trey recognizes this immediately and just goes baseline. He's trying to isolate Al Horford on him the entire time. So here he gets that extra step on Al Horford, just kind of out leverages him because he's bigger than Al and he's quicker than Al. So here Horford has to keep that left arm on Trey. He gets that foul. Jason Tatum makes a silly decision. I don't know if I love that being a technical foul in that spot, but he hits the ball. I can see why the referee would think that that is a disrespectful maneuver toward him. I don't know that it was necessary here. Just another Marcus Smart uh, blunder. This is just a foul. I have no idea why he's trying to do this uh, in this spot. Up one with 16 seconds left. Play defense up, like just straight up. Don't fuck around with this, in my opinion. I thought Marcus Smart, as we went through all of those turnovers on the offensive end, uh, Marcus Smart was not very good in those last six minutes of this game. And frankly, I was very surprised to see that Joe Missoula did not substitute Malcolm Brogdon in who throughout that second quarter that we ran through earlier, which is why I did that running through all of those plays, uh, making it seem like I'm just doing a play by play breakdown uh, that you could read anywhere. It comes back. Malcolm Brogdon was phenomenal. I thought offensively running the show for Boston. Marcus Smart was not in this game. Marcus is hit or miss a lot of the time in terms of whether or not he is going to be able to make an impact uh on the offensive side of the floor as a distributor in big moments. I was surprised to see Joe Missoula not go with Malcolm Brogdon down the stretch as the offense completely sputtered out during this little run. Marcus Smart uh, makes a very egregious decision here to foul Trey Young. That gets it to 116-115. Quinn Snyder on the other side of the court makes an incredibly poor decision, in my opinion, to leave Trey Young on the court. Uh, for that defensive possession. I have no idea what Quinn Snyder was thinking there. Quinn Snyder is a very smart coach, and he made a very bad decision there. They just go down, they attack with Derek White. That is just easy. I would almost bet you that Joe Mazzulla told whoever in the huddle, if you have uh, Trey Young on you, you're the guy that we're going to. We're attacking. Derek White gets downhill. was super simple, was super easy. Gets the foul. It's 117-116 now. And this is just uh, a backbreaker, right? I mean, I, I have no problem with Jalen Brown being the guy on Trey Young. If you will notice, that is not what was 
uh, initially planned. I actually didn't get the initial action here where Trey Young is coming out. It was Marcus Smart. They switched Jalen out onto him. And you know what? If Trey's going to make a 32 foot three to win the game, Trey's going to make a 32 foot three to win the game. And you have to manage that, but it shouldn't have gotten that far. There was no circumstance where Boston should have lost that game. They lost that game in large part because of their inability to execute offensively late in the game. Honestly, I didn't pull those clips because a lot of those clips aren't even that fun to run through. I thought they were just bad reads. I thought that they were bad decisions by Boston's team. And at the end of the day, Atlanta's going home. An enormous performance from Trey Young. Trey Young, uh, I've had some questions about him throughout these playoffs, certainly in the first two games in Boston. He did an absolutely incredible job leading the way today for Atlanta, leading from the front, being the guy that needs to take over uh, every game. He knows what he's capable of. I think Atlanta knows what he's capable of. Uh, And Boston learned today what he is capable of in these big moments where uh, everything needs to go right for the Atlanta Hawks. They force a game six. They get to go back home to Atlanta. They get to get DeJounte Murray back. They need to figure out a way to defend. Uh, I don't know if they can drop 119 against Boston again uh, in this series. If they figure out a way to defend and you get more Trey Young heroics, That'll be important. I also want to note that I thought this was John Collins' best game of the playoffs thus far. I thought it was Nyeka Kongwu's best game. They got really high-level role-player performances on the road outside of Trey Young. But the reason they're going back is Trey Young. And the reason that Trey Young uh, was able to have as much success as he did is because of his success engaging the big, playing out of ball screens, and really dominating Boston's pick-and-roll defense. At some point, I'll probably break down Boston's defense. They've been kind of a mess this series. But uh, I wanted to give Trey Young his flowers today. We'll take a quick commercial break. Then we're going to jump into Jimmy Butler. Uh, Jimmy Butler is just absolutely my favorite player, I feel like, left in the playoffs. I love watching him play. And I'm super excited to dive into what exactly is happening with the Milwaukee Bucks that is allowing Jimmy Butler to get loose like this uh, in this series and have them on the brink of elimination. Okay, we are back. We're going to jump into Jimmy Butler now. Jimmy Butler dropped 56 points in this game, game four, uh, against Milwaukee in Miami to put the Milwaukee Bucks on the brink of elimination uh, in this NBA playoffs. I can't remember an upset that would be quite as big as this. Uh, This does feel on the level to me as the We Believe Warriors upsetting the Dallas Mavericks with the MVP, Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, This feels like it would be an absolutely monumentous upset in so, so, so many ways. And I think it's worth diving into how this is happening with Jimmy Butler and why this is happening on some level with Jimmy Butler. So I think that to do that first, it's worth giving some context on Milwaukee's defense. Milwaukee obviously has an elite defense in the NBA. And I don't want to necessarily uh, take anything away from that. They finished fourth this year in defensive efficiency. 
They do a phenomenal job in so many ways of guarding the ball, of playing in help defense, of protecting the rim. But as much as anything, the Milwaukee Bucks are a defense that relies on you taking shots in the spots they want you to take shots. And in when you are in the areas that they don't want you to take shots, they are going to get maximum ability to contest. It sounds easy, but it's actually not in the NBA. And part of the reason that Milwaukee is able to do it is because they have maybe the best point of attack defender in the NBA in Drew Holiday and arguably the best drop coverage rim protector in the NBA in Brooke Lopez. And then on top of it, they also have a Greek six foot 11 guy with a seven foot five wingspan who can fly across the baseline and cover uh, the entire baseline all by himself at once. They're able to make you essentially take shots from the mid range more often than other teams. So statistically, and a lot of this is going to come from Ben Falk's terrific site, cleaning the glass, the Milwaukee Bucks held teams to the worst effective field goal percentage in the NBA this season at 52%. They do that by keeping teams away from the rim. Teams only took 28.7% of their shots this season against Milwaukee at the basket. That was third best in the NBA. They also keep teams off of the three-point line. Only 33.7% of their opponents' attempts came from behind the three-point line. That was fifth best in the league. And part of why they're so successful is they really limit corner threes. Teams only took 6.6 corner threes per game against the Milwaukee Bucks this season. In part, that's because Giannis is able to traverse the baseline as a help defender in the way that he is. Uh, In part, it's because of the way they crash down from the wings to stop those corner three-point shots. It's a frequency game and a shot chart game for Milwaukee. You look through it like they're seventh in rim percentage against. They hold teams to 35.7% from three. They really don't always... There's not like any category in terms of the shot chart in terms of percentage made where they are truly elite top five in the league. There's one spot though, where they are it's on long mid range twos teams only shot 39% on them on long mid range twos. And to me, that number is a little bit fluky. Uh, I think that number is a little bit uh, of fool's gold in part because to me, it feels it's not fool's gold because they are forcing guys to get to that spot. And some of the guys they force to get to that spot are not the players you want to get to that spot. Having said that, a lot of the time it is the guys that they want to get to that spot. It's the best ball handlers in the league. And they are taking long twos because Milwaukee wants them to take long twos. Obviously, every team in the league wants you to take long twos. This is not breaking news. This is not like a new fad right? It's just that Milwaukee is better at it than anybody and they sell out more to do it, in my opinion, than anybody else. Their goal is to try and close out heavy on the three-point line if you watch their tape and it's to filter everything toward Brooke Lopez because Brooke Lopez is an incredible rim protector. That sets the stage for Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler is a great finisher at the rim, but 
if you leave him open from three, he will take it as we will see momentarily here, but that's not his game. His game is to get into those mid range areas. He's ecstatic to take those shots. He's fantastic at making those shots. He's a tough shot maker. That is who Jimmy Butler is. And now we're going to compound that with the on ball factor of Milwaukee. Let's jump in here and start looking at the tape. And what you're going to see here is something that I noted on the last show where I talked about Jimmy Butler dominating the Milwaukee Bucks. The Milwaukee Bucks do not have anybody, if Giannis is not 100%, to guard Jimmy Butler. Drew Holiday, I think, is genuinely the best point of attack defender in the NBA. He is the best defender of guards in the NBA. Jimmy Butler is a little bit too big for him, and Jimmy Butler can elevate over the top of him, as you will see here. So this is like exactly defensively what Milwaukee wants. Milwaukee is trying to filter Jimmy Butler here toward Brooke Lopez at the basket. So Brooke can be there if he tries to finish at the rim. And Drew is sticking to Jimmy's hip so he can be there to contest the mid-range jumper. The problem is Jimmy Butler is six foot seven and can just shoot up over the top of Drew Holiday. That is a significant problem for the Milwaukee Bucks. And it's a significant problem because Milwaukee does not have anybody else that they can really put on him unless Giannis is 100% healthy and able to play. So on this play here, what you're going to see is transition play. Jimmy is going to go. Still going. He's going to get Chris Middleton isolated on a wing with essentially an empty side of the court. Chris Middleton is not the defender he used to be. Chris Middleton at one time was not quite an all NBA, like all defense defender. He was a drastically above average defender right now. He is not that. And what you will see here is Jimmy is just going to take this little slip action from Kevin love and he's going to go and he is just going to dunk all over Giannis and get all the way to the rim because there was a bit of a miscommunication there with Giannis and Chris, and there was a bit of a uh, leverage issue for Chris trying to get through that slip action, right? So here again, Giannis misses this shot, rebound. This is where I just want to point out that Jimmy Butler's work off the ball in this series, I think, has been absolutely incredible. There was another play that I didn't grab that was kind of a give, give and go with Jimmy where he just gets into the rim and beats Giannis uh, back door in this game that I thought was super impressive. But here, you're just going to see Jimmy He's going to beat Giannis down the court. Again, Brooke Lopez is right there. This is a shot that Milwaukee, based on their own defensive principles, is going to be fine with Jimmy taking. The problem is that Jimmy Butler is very good at those shots, and those shots are going to go more often than they aren't for him. Uh, here we go. Jimmy Butler going to come up. Drew Holiday gets caught in this screening action against Kevin Love. He recovers out. They're going to set a double drag here, followed by uh, basically a reversal of a screen and then another screen. And you're just putting Drew Holiday here through the ringer. The big issue now is that Bobby Portis is the guy in drop coverage. And Bobby Portis, great offensive player, really important for them in terms of their second unit offense. Not a great defensive player. Has improved defensively within their drop coverage scheme, but it's a little bit too easy to shoot over the top of them as Jimmy Butler shows here again with that left elbow jumper. Uh, we're going to go through here again. Jimmy gets the ball. 
this is just a pure miscommunication. Uh, if you give Jimmy all of this space and let him get downhill, uh, eventually Joe Ingles recognizes it. He steps up, kind of makes a weird move there, fouls him, and one for Jimmy Butler. Again, though, that area of the court, that's the spot where Milwaukee wants him to shoot. Jimmy's making them. Here, this is Giannis. My idea for what Milwaukee could do in this series in order to try and combat Jimmy Butler was to put Giannis on him more. There were a couple of possessions where I thought Giannis had a bit of success. There was a left wing pull up three pointer where Giannis got like a full on contest. Jimmy, I believe airballed it by like two feet. Giannis maybe got a piece of it, but the key is that Giannis is the lifeblood of Milwaukee's offense and you can't have him necessarily guarding Jimmy Butler and also being that offensive key while also having an injured back. And here you're just going to see Jimmy takes that pound dribble down, hits that little step back. It feels like because Giannis's back is maybe not quite a hundred percent at this point, he is not as twitchy as he is off of that back foot getting out to contest. And this is just another easy bucket for Jimmy Butler. Uh, here we go again. This is going to be a transition opportunity. Uh, this is where Jimmy Butler is just going to get, I believe that is Grayson Allen isolated on the left wing. And at this point, he's telling everybody, just get the hell away from me. Milwaukee does a good job. They have Drew Holiday come up, try and double, try and get the ball out of Jimmy's hands. It's just at that point, once it's Grayson Allen on him, picking him up in transition, it's too late. That's an easy bucket for Jimmy Butler. Uh, here we go again. This is just an awesome, intelligent play from Miami where Bam Adebayo brings the ball up the court. And this is matchup hunting. This is very clearly Miami trying to get a specific circumstance where Jimmy Butler is not being guarded by Drew Holiday on this play. Here, Drew goes for the steal on Bam in that little action there. Bam is really sharp here. This is an awesome, awesome play where he gets Drew Holiday stuck on his back. He forces that switch from Drew Holiday. And now it goes back out to Jimmy. Now Jimmy's on Brooke Lopez, and this is curtains. This is just, I'm going to out leverage this guy. I'm going to beat him to the rim. And once I do that, he's stuck in recovery. He's trying to do what he can to stick in front of me. I'm going to pivot. I'm going to score that way. Here we go. Jimmy Butler again. That's a shot that Milwaukee wants you to take genuinely based on their defensive principles. That's a shot. Milwaukee is very comfortable with you taking Jimmy Butler makes it because the screen there is just absolutely terrific. Again, here we go. Coming down near the end of the game here. Seven minutes left. This is Chris Middleton on Jimmy Butler. Again, Chris Middleton was a great defender at one point. There's a reason that Jimmy is sending everybody to the other side of the court. He just out leverages Chris not really even a strong contest there from Chris Middleton. I know that Chris thinks he's probably feeding him directly into Brooke Lopez into the help here. Uh, but Jimmy again is comfortable taking that little six foot floater as opposed to going all the way to the basket. Like many players do in that circumstance. So you're just going to see there that Chris Middleton thinks he's feeding him into the help because he can't actually stop him. That's not going to work here. And again, Chris Middleton gets the switch onto Jimmy Butler. This is just Jimmy out leveraging him, beating him with his first step, drawing the foul, easy bucket for Jimmy Butler. It's hard. I mean, if you're Milwaukee, I don't really know what you do here, right? So again, they try to get the switch with Middleton. 
it feels like there's a bit of a miscommunication with Drew going under that screen. And this is Jimmy just pulling up for three. It's probably not a miscommunication. I'm sure that they're trying to go under Jimmy Butler's screens because Jimmy is not necessarily always going to take those three-point opportunities. But here, he just takes that shot. It's easy money. And then gets the rebound, brings the ball up the court. Again, this is Jimmy Butler just at his finest. Nobody picks up the ball. Drew Holiday is playing from behind. He gets that little step back. I'm sure that's a shot he's taken a million times in rhythm. And it's just pretty simple. And then he's celebrating, talking about how this is his house. And indeed it was his house. And this is his house in Miami. So what does Milwaukee do here is a really great question. I don't have an answer. Uh, to me, the answer was to guard him more often with Giannis and Tedekumpo. Maybe. I think that could work. You could put two on the ball more often. I think that's a reasonable adjustment for Milwaukee. If you do that, though, Jimmy Butler is a high-level passer, and he is surrounded for the most part in Miami by high basketball IQ guys that will rotate and reverse the ball, like Kevin Love, like Max Struess, like Gabe Vincent, uh, let alone Bam Adebayo, who's playing next to him. I do think that you have to put two on the ball a little bit more often. That's not, again, what Milwaukee likes to do necessarily, and you can't really do it Brooke Lopez is the primary guy in the action because if Brooke is the primary guy in the action and you're putting two on the ball, you are completely abandoning all of your primary defensive principles. That's not something that teams do in the playoffs. They're not trying to abandon what has gotten them there. They're trying to be elite at what makes them good. Do you try and send two with an off-ball defender, a help defender at the ball. Maybe you try and send Gabe Vincent's guy at him constantly. Uh, even if it's a ball screen action, you play Brook in drop. You said Gabe Vincent's guy to him. Like That's a real potential outcome, I think. It, it's a hard problem to solve, though, for Milwaukee's defense specifically because of what their principles are and what their scheme is and essentially what their muscle memory is in these plays. These guys are all great players, and I do think that they can figure it out. But I think that Jimmy Butler is going to continue to go off. The thing is that Jimmy Butler went off in this game, and it still required Miami to beat Milwaukee by 16 points in the fourth quarter to win by five. Milwaukee was up double digits, it felt like, I think until the seven-minute mark of this game, with seven minutes left remaining in this game. Miami has much less room for error than Milwaukee does in this series. Even with all that I just broke down, all that I explained about how I think Jimmy Butler is going to continue to absolutely crush Milwaukee. All that Milwaukee has to do is shoot a normal percentage from three there. If they go 15 for 40 from three instead of 13 for 40 from three, it's like, you know, 36%. Basically, that's a normal number for Milwaukee. They win this game. If Miami stops shooting 40% from three, uh, like it feels like they have in every game outside of game two, if I remember correctly, I'll look up the box score as we're talking there. Uh, Even in game two, Miami shot 44% from three. So I'm sorry. Super high levels from three. So at the end of the day, what this comes down to is if Miami stops shooting this well from three or if Milwaukee just makes a couple more buckets, Milwaukee has the margin for error here when Giannis is on the court. 
and they can easily rip off three straight games. The problem is that now they're backed into a corner and they have to do it for three straight games. There can be no uncertainty here. There can be no messing around. They're 11 and a half point favorites at home in game five. I'd imagine they will be favored in all three of these games. They were the number one seed in the NBA this season. They have the margin for error here, despite the fact that they don't have anybody to guard Jimmy Butler. And yeah, you can point to the fact that maybe Miami's threes have been a little bit more open than what they have been throughout the course of the season, right? There are a lot of different things you can point to here that will tell you that Miami is going to win one of these three games. Miami has the 25th offensive rating in the league. They take a ton of threes, but you know what? They shot 34.4% on them this season. Thus far, they're shooting 45%, I think, from three in this series. If that stops, things get easier for Milwaukee. Milwaukee can start its transition break a little bit easier, more often off of missed shots. Giannis can be that freight train out in transition that we're used to seeing more often, even with his back injury uh, or hip injury. I forget what it is. I'm sorry. Uh, Out of missed shots. If you miss the ball more often, it creates more transition opportunities for your opponent. That's what Milwaukee loves. Milwaukee loves getting that early offense. It's a big part of why their offense thrives uh, in the regular season. They get those early offensive opportunities and they go. In the playoffs, you typically need higher level half-court shot creators because there are more half-court possessions in the playoffs. I still don't think we've seen the normal amount of half-court possessions, even for a playoff series for Milwaukee. Uh, They should be able to get out in transition as soon as Miami stops missing threes. But the problem is now that if Miami goes 45% from three in one more game, the margin for error for Milwaukee then drops down to zero. And that is why we're in the predicament we're in. But Jimmy Butler uh, deserves his flowers, has been one of the best players in the NBA for, what, seven or eight years now. Certainly one of the best playoff performers, continues to rise to the occasion, thrive in these big moments. And in part, it's because of this well-rounded offensive game that he can bring out the mid-range jumper, ability to make shots at the rim, high-level passing ability, high-level pick-and-roll play. All of it comes together for Jimmy Butler. Uh, and that 56-point performance was one of the best performances I've ever seen in an NBA playoff game against the defense that is that good. Let's take one more quick commercial break. We will be back. We're going to talk about the two Western Conference games tonight. We're not going to go wildly long on Denver, Minnesota. We're also probably not going to go wildly long on Phoenix. But we will be right back. Okay, we're back. Let's dive in very quickly to this Minnesota Denver game five. Denver moves on. They win 112 to 109. As referenced at the top, I only watched the fourth quarter of this game. I was a lot more focused on Phoenix because I really am just truly fascinated by everything with the Suns. And then also was a little bit more focused on 
trying to rewatch a little bit more of that Boston game in order to understand all of the multitudes of things that are happening with the Celtics in terms of their late game offense. I watched the fourth quarter though. And where I want to kind of jump in and talk about this is more from Minnesota's side. It's really intriguing to me that especially early in the fourth quarter, the Minnesota offense, I thought, looked a little bit more. It, it knew what it wanted from its play a little bit more often. Like you finally saw some of the high low action from Carl Towns and Rudy Gobert that I think they probably envisioned coming into the year. I think they had two or three buckets just off of high low action where Carl Towns caught the ball at the top of the key, threw a ball down to Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert got fouled on one play by Jamal Murray, dunked on another play, I believe, got an and one. Uh, those are the two that come to mind. I think they had one more. Um, those are the kind of ideals that I think Minnesota was hoping for offensively from that fit. And then you have Anthony Edwards flying around, being a great cutter, being the primary initiator offensively. Then they go out and they get Mike Conley at the deadline. Really unselfish player, can really move the ball around, can also be an elite level pick and roll player himself in terms of distribution. Obviously has great chemistry with Rudy Gobert from their years together in Utah. So I thought it was interesting that in that fourth quarter, we finally saw some of the ideals that I bet you Tim Connolly, Mark Lore, Alex Rodriguez, you know, everyone, Matt Lloyd, everyone associated in that Minnesota front office thought they were getting when they would make it work. And obviously Carl Towns misses a significant part of the year. You don't get to build that chemistry. It becomes a little bit trickier. That's something that I think Minnesota could build upon if they decide to run this core back. Kyle Anderson is a free agent. We'll talk about their uh, potential for, I don't know about breakup is the right terminology. I I don't know if, uh, I don't know what they're going to do. We'll talk about that at a later date. I do want to dive into some of these teams that get eliminated like I did with Brooklyn. Minnesota's maybe the most interesting one because they have so many potential options on the table. Okay. From Denver's side, we got the incredible Jamal Murray game finally uh, that we had been waiting for since I believe game two or game three, whenever he had that incredible duel with Anthony Edwards. And then we had this weird Nikola Jokic game where he really struggled. It felt like to deal with the length of Rudy Gobert a lot of the time. He was phenomenal as a passer and playmaker. You look at the box score, he had 28 points, 17 rebounds and 12 assists. It's really hard to complain when that is uh, that is the potential outcome, right? And I'm sorry, Lars G in the YouTube comments is saying Kyle Anderson's under contract next year. I, why did I think he was out of contract? I can't remember. He just signed a contract last year for two years. You're 100% right, Lars. That's on me. Um, but I think I'm thinking of Torian Prince. Apologies there. But in Nikola Jokic's case, he really struggled with his efficiency as a scorer in a way that I feel like we have not seen in a while. And I also just want to say, like, he looked tired out there. He looked wiped for, like, significant portions of this game. Jokic does not get a whole lot of elevation regularly, right? But typically his endurance is there. Like, uh, people make fun of the way he looks all the time. But Nikola Jokic 
plays significant minute loads every year, season after season, game after game. And it felt like to me that he was tired, like in the fourth quarter, particularly of this game. He's kind of throwing up weirder angle shots than what we've seen even from him. It was bizarre. But the thing that I want to talk about Nikola Jokic most. Is he has been very poor this season as a rim protector. And that is the reason to me why he is not the MVP of the league. I think that his defense was exceedingly poor this season. I, I don't think it was, especially in the second half of the season. Uh, I thought that his defense was very, very poor, especially around the basket. And I want to point to four examples of what I think is happening here. And again, these are all from the fourth quarter. This is all from one quarter of an incredibly important game that the Nuggets are trying to win in order to end this series now on home turf. Don't have to go back to Minnesota. Get some rest before what will be an absolute mess of a next series. And this, this is the kind of stuff that annoys me, right? So like... Jokic throughout the course of this season, I have felt like, especially in the second half of the season, has had this maddening habit, instead of trying to contest, to try to pick up a charge. I hate charges, uh, but I especially don't like them when they come incredibly, uh, incredibly easy to read that they're forthcoming, right? That Jokic is going to try and take a charge here. So look at this. I believe that's the kill. Alexander Walker gets Michael Porter Jr. On his hip. Jokic decides to try and step up to take the charge here. As you see right there, he's kind of holding his nuts as you do when you try and take a charge. And by doing that, he peels off of Rudy Gobert without actually impacting what Nikhil Alexander Walker is doing. And you're going to see here, this is just an easy lob for Rudy Gobert to go up and throw down. Stop doing this. You're going to see it again on this play here. Uh, this is going to go to Anthony Edwards here out in transition. Anthony Edwards is going to pick up this screen from Carl Towns. And here you're going to see Jokic backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. And he's going to stop right there and try and take a charge against one of the best athletes and like most fluid movers on the ground in the NBA. There's never a circumstance where this is going to work. Why are you trying to like sit here and take this charge instead of trying to contest the play? And look, I guess you can say that at the end of the day, he did contest the rebound or you could just try and corral him in space and use relatively decent short area quickness in order to do it. But he doesn't do that. He tries to take, in my opinion, the lazy way out. In his case, I think that is a lazy play from Nikola Jokic, unfortunately. Uh, here, you're going to see Carl Towns get the ball in the wing in a mismatch against Jamal Murray. This is a very obvious mismatch. Carl Towns recognizes it. Aaron Gordon recognizes it. He tries to blitz and come down. I have no idea why Nikola Jokic is still on the opposite side of the paint here by the time Towns' foot hits the block, right? I just have no idea why. That can't happen. He needs to be much more available and ready to be that help defender whenever there's a very clear mismatch with your man coming down in Aaron Gordon. So you know, you absolutely know here that Carl Towns is either going to get the ball out or he's going to go baseline. 
This is an easy rotation baseline. Nicole Jokic misses it. Okay, last play here. You're going to see him back up here. Find Rudy Gobert. This is another Carl Towns drive. And he's just late. This is this is him just being late as a rim protector, right? He needs to be more available. He needs to be there. And the reason why I harp on this, on a day where he, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that, uh, on a day where he had 28 points, 17 rebounds, and 12 assists, is they're about to play Phoenix. And Phoenix in ball screens will cause him all sorts of problems. They will force him into very difficult situations with DeAndre Ayton and all of the mess of shooting they have around DeAndre. Devin Booker has become incredible at taking advantage of these opportunities on drives. Chris Paul will string him out and make life harder for him. Kevin Durant will string him out, make life harder for him. You can make a case that mid-range gunning Phoenix won't put pressure on the rim quite like Minnesota did. Phoenix is much better than Minnesota. And Devin Booker is much better than Anthony Edwards. All due respect to Anthony Edwards. We're about to talk about Devin Booker. He's been the best player in the playoffs so far. In my opinion, even better than Jimmy Butler, who comes in at a very strong number two. This won't fly against Phoenix. Nikola Jokic needs to clean it up. Needs to be much more impactful as a rim protector coming over from the weak side. And you can't try and take these charges, especially against guys like Phoenix and like Devin Booker, like Kevin Durant, that will see you sit up and take a charge or try to take a charge. And they're just going to stop and pop right in front of you. That's it. And that's an easy shot for them. As soon as you go for that, that's going to be a very simple shot. Nikola Jokic needs to clean it up. Okay. Last game. The best game of the day, in my opinion, because while the Atlanta-Boston game was incredible and exciting and thrilling, it kind of came down to very poor play from Boston in the end. The Clippers and the Suns just played one of the more fun NBA games that I've seen in quite a while. It was back and forth. It was a seesaw. And before we get to what I want to talk about, which is the Phoenix Suns third quarter, this third quarter is exactly what we've been waiting for offensively to see from Phoenix, right? This is the exact thing that we've been waiting for. This is the exact thing that all of us have wanted to see from Phoenix. These All of us basketball purists that want to watch great uh, Phoenix Suns basketball and idealized basketball. They dropped 50 points in the third quarter. They are unbelievable. We'll get there in a second. I want to shout out the Clippers for the way that they came back in the fourth quarter. It would have been so, so easy to mail in that fourth quarter if you were the Los Angeles Clippers. You're down 3-1. You're on the road. You just gave up 50 points in the third quarter. It's about a 20-point lead at this point. No reason to think that they're going to win this game at this point. I believe in the fourth quarter. I apologize by that point. No reason to think they're going to win this game. It would have been very easy to roll over. On top of that, your two stars are out. Kawhi Leonard is out. Paul George is out. No reason to think they're going to win that game. Those guys believed. Those guys believed they could do it. 
Norman Powell was really high level. And I know that Russell Westbrook is coming off of probably his worst game of this series. I know he was not very good in game one, but this was probably Russ's worst game of the series. He went three for 18. He had five turnovers. He only had 14 points and eight assists. I think that this comeback kind of comes down to who Russell Westbrook is as a player. That guy will never say die. He will play hard until the final whistle. He will annoy the shit out of you on the defensive end right now uh, when he's really locked in. And he has certainly been locked in in this series. I thought that he had some moments where he got a bit over aggressive off the ball as we are wanting to see from Russ. But for the most part, I thought he was really, really terrific in this in this series defensively. And then offensively, he's going to grab the ball and he's going to shove it down your throat in transition. And he is going to shove it down your throat out of ball screens. And he is going to keep fighting and he is going to keep going. And I think that energy level really lifted the Clippers. And the Clippers deserve a lot of credit here too because they're without their two stars. Both these guys are hurt. And the Clippers, part of their team-building identity has been, we want guys with Clippers DNA is what they call it. We want guys that are going to be high-level competitors. They're going to fight. They're going to scratch. They're going to claw. They're going to be high-level defensive players. They're going to be two-way guys. They're going to be useful all across the board. I thought that we saw that in this game. And I think that if they can ever get Kawhi Leonard and Paul George healthy, and I think that's no guarantee, this is a very dangerous team and remains a very dangerous team. Shout out to the Clippers. We will talk about your offseason later on. But let's talk about the Suns and let's talk about this third quarter. Uh, this third quarter was one of the most ridiculous offensive performances I have seen all season. So again, let's dive in to some tape here. So the Phoenix Suns, this is DeAndre Ayton miss. This is the shot that gets Devin Booker going. So he gets this offensive rebound here just gets it and saves it to DeAndre Ayton, who throws the little handoff to him. And this is Devin Booker. He's sitting back on one foot. He's ready to go. He's kind of hopping on it. And you know he's feeling it at that point because he's been feeling it all series. I think that's the shot that really got him going. I believe he went for 25 or 27 in this quarter and was just absolutely incredible the entire time. That's just a simple dribble handoff where DeAndre gets the ball off the inbounds, hands it back to Chris Paul, not quite good enough defensively, not quite engaged enough defensively from the Clippers there. This one just goes to show, look, this is why the Suns are so dangerous. You have to pick up all of Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant in transition before they get to that three-point line. If they get to that three-point line and they don't see a hand, that ball's going up and they're all 40% three-point shooters. I trust Chris Paul will be a 40% three-point shooter. Devin Booker on open shots is a 40% three-point shooter. Kevin Durant, one of the best shooters of all time. That ball's going in. That is why they're so hard to stop. So here, you're going to see a really fun little dribble handoff into a rejected screen. And then DeAndre is going to kind of flip it a few times. Again, the Clippers end up here kind of with two on the ball. 
this is where things get very tricky because as you see, DeAndre Ayton is about to go on rim run. DeAndre Ayton is a rim runner is going to force that tagger on the backside to make a decision. Do I tag? Do I not tag? In this case, it doesn't matter because Kevin Durant is a freak show and just makes that ridiculous leaning mid-range jumper, like mid-range floater. I don't even fade away. I, all of that combined in one. Uh, off the glass, ball goes in. Ridiculous touch, ridiculous shot maker, Kevin Durant. But very easy to see how much stress they're going to continue to put on defenses in that way. So here, Devin Booker is going to bring the ball up court. You're going to see just a quick little double drag set here. The problem is that, okay, what do you do? If Evita Zubats is a little higher up the court in order to try and stop the Devin Booker shot, that's just an easy pass to Bismack Biombo rolling to the basket, and there's nobody at the basket. If he's there, the end result is what it is. Devin Booker wide open shot from the mid-range, and he will always make that. In the corner, I think the best play here is you have Markeith Morris help up from the corner and make, I believe that's Josh Kogi make a three. That's what I would prefer to do and how I'd prefer to defend that. But that's also like completely antithetical to like many defensive principles. So again, really hard to like scheme that and plan that again. Another example of you have to pick up Devin Booker before the three point line. If you don't pick him up before the three point line, Eric Gordon, the play is over. Okay. Next play here. This is just absurd from Devin Booker. And this is where I kind of want to dive into where he has gotten so good as a player, in my opinion. Uh, He was never this fluid coming out of Kentucky. He was fluid and he could knock down shots and play with the ball. But he was never this, where it's all extremely fluid, all in one motion. This is stuff that like, just ridiculous. I mean, he's slaloming through the defense at full speed, crossing over, going left to right, right to left, back to back, getting somehow aligned to the basket. I I mean, I just like, don't even know how someone can maintain their balance in this way. This is like Kobe Bryant shit to me. The ability to lift up, maintain your balance, maintain your center of gravity, have yourself aligned to the basket entirely like Devin Booker does here. It's just absurd. It's completely absurd. Uh, This is why he has been the best player in the playoffs thus far. So here you're going to see Booker gets that switch on to Batum. Aiton sets like a little mini ghost screen there. He gets into the middle of the court. If I remember correctly, this might have been when they no this is not when they switched to zone i'm sorry so yeah this is going to be eight and coming up setting a little ghost screen they have two on the ball this is why putting two on the ball is so dangerous for the phoenix suns you have deandre Ayton, who if you really wanted to could just completely seal off terrence man here and that's a bucket if he does that or because terrence man has to engage deandre Ayton at the rim which he does because they have two on the ball kevin durant's wide open in the corner for three That is the true difficult choice that you have to make every time that you play the Phoenix Suns in ball screens. If you put two on the ball and they have Chris Paul and Kevin Durant on the weak side as the low man, you're leaving 
an elite catch and shoot player wide open. It's insane. This is why the Phoenix Suns are so incredibly difficult to guard. This one, we're going to see Devin Booker come up. And he just sees an open lane. He sees, I believe, I believe he's reading Mason Plumley having his back turned here to the play entirely because DeAndre wraps around the play uh, on that. What is that? That's going to be an off ball. It's not even like a pin down, but Devin Booker just reads this. He beats the man. This is easy. Norman Powell's pissed because he has no help at the basket. Simple. This is where they switch to zone. And, and I mean, I have no idea how you're expecting to zone this team and find success given their shooting. Uh, DeAndre Ayton comes up, sets this little screen here. Obviously, they have help coming from the wing. This is just the easiest set of kickouts in the world. Landry Shamit's on the opposite corner. I mean, Landry Shamit's going to knock down catch-and-shoot shots that are that wide open most of the time. He is like a 40% three-point shooter by trade, even if he hasn't shot that well, it seems like, this year. Uh, this is Their ball movement's too good. They're too unselfish. You can't zone this team. Uh, so again, they're going to put two on the ball here, but this time Devin is going to kind of string it out. He's going to string it out a little bit more. Terrence Mann's trying very hard to play defense. And as soon as Devin Booker just gets that little angle, it's curtains. He's going to go up for the little floater. It's pretty easy. Mason Plumlee's not a good enough rim protector for that to be a problem for him. And then finally, this is just absolutely disgusting action because it's Kevin Durant and Devin Booker uh, in a, what is that going to be a four, two ball screen action. So they decide to switch the four, two ball screen action. They get Nick Batum on Kevin Durant. Okay. Like, I guess that's fine. But then if Kevin is able to beat Nick Batum off the bounce, which he almost always is. Yeah. I mean, this is just going to be a little bit too easy for Kevin here. The help comes. DeAndre Ayton is wide open, uh, rolling around. He is going all the way to the rim. As you can see, this could have been a very easy pass for Kevin Durant. Could have found DeAndre Ayton at the rim, or he can just throw up that shot and knock it down. This is the fully operational Phoenix Suns that we all thought we were going to get, and we didn't even see some of the crazier stuff that they can get out of in pick and roll. A lot of their buckets came out in transition, a lot of really bad turnovers, a lot of bad long-missed shots from the Clippers kind of led to that. Uh, but yeah, the, the Phoenix Suns are absolutely terrifying, and playing the Denver Nuggets in the second round is going to be fascinating because I think that team has real potential to put a lot of stress on the Nuggets. You basically have to guard Jamal Murray with Chris Paul. You have to guard Kevin Durant with Aaron Gordon. I think that works fine. But then once you get these guys into rotation and once you bring anybody off the bench, all due respect to Bruce Brown and Christian Brown, I'm a little bit worried about how all of that looks. Uh, I'm actually quite worried about how all of that looks, if I'm being completely honest. Okay. That's all I've got here today. I believe that nobody sent off any questions during the middle of this. So that's good. That means I can get out of here in an hour and seven minutes. I'm fascinating, fascinated for the games tomorrow. We're going to get to see four absolutely fantastic, important, critical NBA playoff games. Knicks, Cavs, and Lakers, Grizzlies will start the day. Heat, Bucks, Warriors, Kings will end the day. 
we could end up having three teams eliminated. We could uh, end up having no teams eliminated. Uh, I would imagine that all three of those teams, I haven't looked at the odds necessarily. All three of the teams that are on the brink will be favored in their games. I would bet. Uh, but as we saw tonight with the Hawks, you never know. The playoffs are a crazy, crazy environment. Uh, shout out Connor Andrews. Met him out in Santa Barbara. Great dude. Uh, all right, let's get out of here. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. Go to the Game Theory Podcast YouTube channel, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vecini. You will get to see everything that you need to see uh, in terms of tape. If you want to watch some of the bigger tape deep dives that we do, you will get to see everything uh, that we do up on the channel there. We'll break down into nice little snippets, nice little moments for you to be able to look at if you're looking for something specific like the Jimmy Butler breakdown that we just did. That's the best place for you to get the content of the podcast at this point. We will be back tomorrow. Mark Schindler will be here. We're going to break down all of the four playoff games that occurred on Wednesday in the United States. That'd be okay. Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.